The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. It also contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. When I'm putting together stories for this podcast, I always try to push the cases forward. It's not about simply recounting stories I've covered. It's about doing my job as a journalist, digging for the truth, and presenting all sides, always open to what I might discover. As a starting point, I go through my notes and previous stories. But I always like to dig deeper. I re-interview police, pore over court files, and I ask a lot of questions. But most importantly, I speak with the loved ones of the victims in these cases. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, I'm sharing a case that I covered from start to finish. But I discovered this case went much deeper than I ever expected. This is the story of Brittany McInnes. In January 2010, Brittany McInnes was on Christmas break. She was enjoying the time away from school. At 17, Brittany's top priorities were family and friends, which included her very best friend, Ashley. They were inseparable since the day they met eight years earlier, back when they were in grade four. She was different from anybody I've ever met in my life. You know, when you meet someone and you just click. It wasn't out of the ordinary for Brittany to sleep over at Ashley's. It was all the time. We were pretty much always together. If I wasn't at her house, she was at mine. That's exactly what Brittany's mom thought she was doing on January 17th, 2010. It wasn't until the next day, when her mom needed to get a hold of her because of a family emergency, that she realized Brittany wasn't at Ashley's house. Her mom just called me, like, asking if Brittany was with me and everything, and I said she wasn't. It turned out Ashley hadn't talked to Brittany for two days, and she wasn't answering her phone. I texted her and I called her and she didn't answer. Like, her phone went straight to voicemail and everything. It was kind of weird. Have you ever had that happen? No. Brittany was missing. To help you understand just how out of character this was for Brittany, I need to take you back. She was the middle of three siblings. She had an older brother and a younger sister, Katie, who she adored. They were very close. I mean, we got in trouble for hanging out too much. Our parents told us we had to like make friends and not hang out with each other all the time. That's Katie. The sisters had nicknames for each other. Brittany called Katie Kit Kat, and she called Brittany Biddy. When you say it, it sounds kind of biased, but really, like, she would just come home with presents for you, like, randomly, and just be like, oh, I saw this, like, here you go, like, I thought you'd like it, like, you know, draw me pictures to, like, tell me how much she loves me. She gave me, like, a card, and I have it laminated, and it just says on it, like, oh, I hope you have such a good day, Kit Kat, love you, 
love your biggest fan, like just stuff like that. The two sisters shared a room for most of their childhood. Their walls were covered in posters of the Jonas Brothers. Katie's favorite was Nick and Brittany's was Joe. She wrote the words, I love Joe Jonas on her desk. The girls sang songs, shared jokes and played games. Because we shared a room, I think that really helped us become really, really close. Cause like at nighttime, if we wanted to stay up, we would practice this thing called parents are coming. And we would like jump into bed and pretend we were sleeping. And we practiced that like four or five times. And then we just played in our rooms together at night. And then that way we had like down pat, if we could hear our parents coming down the stairs, we could just pretend we were sleeping. <laughs> so I, I remember like a lot when we were kids, we just, I, I don't even think, she didn't really make me feel like I was a younger sibling. It was more or less, we were like just best friends. They also had a much larger blended family. When they were really little, their parents split up. Then when Brittany was just three years old, her mother, Kelly, moved in with Brad Ritz. They were in love. And to Kelly's three kids, he soon became dad. I started looking up to Brad more as like a father figure because he was the only like dad I had in my life. So um, it's basically like when my real dad kind of left, um, we did call Brad dad uh, while my real dad was in our lives. Um, because I remember when I was quite young and my mom told us, uh, I called him dad by accident. My mom said that he really liked that we called him dad. So asked us to keep doing it. Brad had several children of his own from a previous relationship. So when they all got together, it was a full house. It's quite a big family, to be honest with you. We also had three stepbrothers, which were Brad's kids that we grew up with as well. Um, and I also have a half sister on my real dad's side. We lived in like quite a small place. And uh, when my brothers visited, it was just like a riot because there's about eight of us in like this like fourplex. So it was like absolutely ridiculous. One of their favorite things to do when the siblings were all together was get up early and watch cartoons. Their favorite show was Power Rangers. And then after Power Rangers, we would go outside and like reenact with each other what we just watched. We all had um, like our own Power Ranger that we were because like obviously there's six of them and there's six of us. Um, so we each had like our own color and we all got like necklaces with like that color of the Power Ranger. And we would tie like blanket or towels around our necks to pretend that it was like our Power Ranger cape and all that. Like we were super into like watching Power Rangers every morning. It was ridiculous. Brittany had a thing for superheroes. In fact, she called herself Superman. My sister, like, can't remember how young she was, but she just, like, posted on Facebook, like, I have something to share with everybody, and it's, like, a huge secret. And, like, every day she would, like, be like, oh, almost there, I'm almost going to share it. And then my auntie commented, and my auntie's like, Brittany, I have something to tell you. Like, I just want you to know that I'm Superman. And my sister's like, it's not nice to steal people's identity. And for some reason, she just decided that she was Superman and that's like what people knew her as and she even put it as like a name tag on like where she worked. She just said like Superman stickers and everything. She was just Superman. When Brittany was a teenager, the family moved into a larger house. Her parents thought the two sisters would be thrilled to have their own space. 
I remember getting my own room at like maybe 14 and in the mornings I would still go down to her room to get ready and my parents were like are you serious like we gave you guys separate rooms and you guys are still like hanging out together in the same room all the time like what was the point of us giving you separate rooms with so many kids in the house it made sense that Brittany's father Brad ran a bit of a tight ship there were a lot of rules when we came home after school we would we would be forced to sit down and study for one hour every single day. And then we would get up and do the dishes. And then we'd basically just have to go to bed and we just obliged. We just did everything he asked us to do. Um, I mean, if we didn't, <laughs> we would be grounded or we would get yelled at. But predictably, children like to test boundaries. And Katie said they learned what they could get away with like secretly watching a movie on their iPods at night. And they also quickly learned what they couldn't do. He would come home after being at the bar and like feel the TV. And if we had been watching TV in the night, we would be in trouble. Yeah, if the TV was warm, then we were in trouble because he knew we were watching TV while he was gone. The rules were even tighter when it came to boys. Well, he was very strict. Um, and very protective. He didn't like the fact that, I mean, my sister got her first boyfriend when she was, say, grade 10, and he hated it and made her break up with him. She wasn't allowed to date. Uh, she was so excited. She got like this giant teddy bear from this guy, her very first boyfriend, and she brought it home all excited. And he like went off his nut, was like so upset about it. And she ended up breaking up with him because Brad just like, just made her life a living hell because she had a boyfriend. But Brittany didn't let things get her down. She was the kind of girl who always had a smile on her face. She had just turned 17, and soon she would graduate and have her whole life ahead of her. She was loving every minute of Christmas break that year. And Saturday, January 16th, 2010, was an especially fun day. Brittany met up with her best friend, Ashley, and they went to the movies. We just kind of went to go see The Lovely Bones. The Lovely Bones tells the story of a teenage girl who gets raped, then murdered. The victim later looks down at the world she left behind, watching her friends and family struggle to move on without her. It was a dark movie for the two girls to watch, and Ashley said it was kind of creepy. After the movie, Brittany went home to a special dinner with her family to celebrate Katie's 15th birthday. The evening ended with Brittany saying a bedtime prayer with her mom, like she always did. She stayed up for a little while texting a couple of friends, including Ashley. Brittany told her friend she was reading a book Brittany loved to read. Her favorite ones were from the Chicken Soup for the Soul collection. Just before two in the morning, Brittany texted Ashley. She was finally going to go to sleep. The next day was gonna be busy. Brittany had plans to take Katie shopping. So she sent one final message. Good night, buddy, sleep well. Ashley texted back. Okay, pal, have a good sleep. Don't let the bed bugs bite hard. 
my sister was going to take me shopping for my birthday, as she did practically every single year. And uh, she had saved some money up and she took some cash out and tucked that away for me. And we were going to go on the Sunday. So the next morning I'd gotten up and uh, we went to church every Sunday, like practically religiously. So um, my mom and I got up to go to church and I was trying to convince my sister to come with us, but she was just too tired. So I was like banging on her door. I was like, wake up. And she's like, no, no, I'm too tired. I'm just gonna stay in. I was like, right, okay. So mom and I went to church. But that sister shopping day wouldn't happen. And Katie had no idea her whole world was about to come crashing down. Came home and Brad answered the door and he was so shaky, like just shaking like absolute crazy. And he had scratches on his face and he was freaking out. And he just said, you know, someone, someone tried to break into the house. And the back window, the back door, uh, we had a picture frame hanging there and that was like smashed. And there was footprints in the back and he gave us like a police number and said like, I, I spoke to the police and like, they're on the lookout for this guy. The break-in had everyone a little bit freaked out. Brad told Kelly and Katie that Brittany had already left the house for her regular Sunday babysitting job. Every Sunday, my sister would babysit for this lady and like her son. And so he told us that she was out babysitting, which isn't out of the norm because that's normally what she always did. So we were like, right, okay, so she's out babysitting. So I sent her a text and I was like, hey, like, are you wanting to go shopping today? Um, just let me know when you're free. And, you know, she never responded, which was very strange because, you know, she was a teenager. She was absolutely obsessed with her phone. And um, I told my mom, I was like, you know, she's not responding. And um, he was like, oh, well, she's responding to me and like stuck his tongue out at me. And I was like, okay, that's strange. Cause like, why would she be ignoring me? Like, you know, she's my sister, we talk all the time. But I was like, right, okay. Um, so I went up to my friend's house and told my friends, you know, this is what happens. Like there was this person who broke in. So just make sure you lock your doors tonight. And uh, my friend invited me to a Ukrainian Christmas dinner with her. And so I was like, oh, that'd be great. So I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. So, you know, I asked Brad if it was okay. And he said, yes, which is very strange because he normally just like said no to everything. So I was like quite excited. I was like, okay, great. Like, and he told us that she was then, after babysitting, she um, was staying at her best friend's house for a sleepover, which she also did quite a bit. And uh, this was Christmas holiday as well, so we didn't have any school the next day. So this was a Sunday. So um, he said, you know, she's staying at a friend's house and like, we're just gonna let her do it because we don't want to scare her about the break-in and everything. So I went to this Ukrainian dinner, not thinking much of anything. That night, Kelly and Brad went to their favorite local pub, which was also not unusual. While at the pub, Brad texted Brittany and told her to be safe. Despite the stressful day, it seemed everything was going to be okay. I was running late. I was supposed to be home at a specific time. And you know, when, when they say be home at this time, you have to be home at that time. And I called him and I was like, I'm really sorry, but like I'm running behind. Is it okay if like I stay like an extra hour or something, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh yeah, that's totally fine. Katie got home late and went straight to bed. And about 
four or five the next morning, I heard like strange voices in my house and I was like, what the hell? I like got up and went to my parents' room and there was like, like paramedics and firefighters standing there. And I was like, what's going on? Like what's happening? And Brad's face had like dropped, like completely sunk in and he couldn't stand up. His whole body was just like, he looked like an 80 year old man. And these police officers had to drag him out of the house because obviously he needed to go to the hospital. Like it looked like he had a stroke or something. Like the way he was walking, his knees were like buckling together. Like he couldn't walk. Brad was rushed to hospital. Kelly and Katie went to be by his side. Kelly needed to track down Brittany. We were at uh, the hospital and my mom was trying to get a hold of Brittany to let her know what was happening with Brad. And she called Brittany's phone, but it was off. And so she called Ashley, which is the girl that she was supposed to be staying at. And she said like, I need to speak to Brittany, something happened. And Ashley's like, I haven't seen Brittany since like Saturday. None of Brittany's friends had seen her. Kelly grabbed Brad's phone and started scrolling through his messages. He had been texting Brittany from the pub the night before. So maybe those texts would explain where she was. What Kelly found was a series of one-sided texts from Brad to his daughter. The first, sent Sunday, one day earlier, read, okay, call me when you're done. A minute later, he texted, don't forget, followed by, sure, let us know. About an hour later, Brad texted his daughter again. Where are you? Let me ask mom. Okay, be safe. And there was one final unanswered text that Sunday afternoon from Brad to Brittany. It read, God forgive me. That's when Brittany's mother called police and reported her missing. Investigators searched their home, but there was no sign of the missing teenager. In the meantime, Katie texted her aunt, Brad's sister, and told her what was happening. She agreed to pick Katie up and help search for Brittany. So when my auntie picked me up, we knew that my sister was missing. We knew that like, we didn't know where she was, but like, I wasn't too concerned at that point. I was like, you know, like, I'm sure that there's an explanation. So when my auntie picked me up, we kind of just decided we'd just drive around and like stop at places and just like see what we can find out. So we went to Ashley's house and that was like her best friend where she was supposed to be staying. And I was like, you know, are you sure you haven't seen her? Like she's not with a boy, anything like that. And I remember so clearly Ashley being like, no, but like, I know something's happened. Like something's, something bad's happened. And I was like, no, everything's fine, Ashley. It's fine. Like there's an explanation for this. They went to Brittany's school and her work but there was no sign of her. We couldn't find her anywhere. So my auntie was like, right, okay, you're gonna stay over at our house tonight. Like, we'll go to your house to pack a bag. And I was like, right, okay, so go to my house and I'm in my bedroom and I'm packing a bag and I hear my cousin crying. So I go out into the living room and my cousin is just like shaking like crazy and she, she can't decide if she wants to stand or sit. She's just like so antsy and she's like crying her eyes out. And I was like, what happened? And she's like, don't go downstairs. Just don't go downstairs. 
and I was like, what, like, what are you talking about? And she's like, just don't go downstairs. And my brother was with me at this point. And um, so obviously like, you know, we went downstairs. I need to take a minute here to let you know what happened next was disturbing and includes graphic details of sexual abuse and extreme violence. I should also tell you, Katie has had to relive these moments over and over. So when she talks about it, she feels almost detached. It's almost like I'm just telling someone else's story and it just like there's there's very little emotion to it anymore because I've just said it so many times that it just doesn't feel real anymore. My auntie was outside when we ran down the stairs and she was on the phone. And now I know obviously she was on the phone with 911, but I had no idea. I just thought she was on the phone. So we ran downstairs and went to my sister's room and we we're just kind of standing there like, you know, like why was my cousin freaking out? And my brother opens the closet and, you know, we don't, we don't see anything. We're like, right, okay, like what's going on? And then um, my brother lifted her mattress and she was lying there. Brittany was dead. What happened to their Superman? The girl who was fun-loving, kind, and thoughtful. It was very emotionally charged because of, of the, the nature of her death. Um, and you, you, can't, you can't unsee what you see. That's Detective Tom Barrow. Police work is in Barrow's blood. His dad was an officer before him. He's recently retired from the Calgary Police Service after 25 years on the job. And even now, he still works as an investigator doing corporate security. Back in 2010, he was with the CPS Homicide Unit and became the primary investigator assigned to Brittany's case. She was so innocent and she was like my daughter at this point detective barrow needed to stop and take a minute his eyes welled up with tears as he recounted details of the investigation for our interview even a decade later it's obvious this case has had a major impact on him i just can't imagine um the place where you're supposed to feel the safest in your home with the people who are supposed to make you safe doing something like this to you. Barrow said the autopsy made it clear Brittany had been murdered. The body speaks volumes in an autopsy like this. What had happened to her, um, the fight that, that she had, her fingernails were ripped so she, she had DNA underneath her fingernails. Some of her fingernails were ripped off. So she had obviously tried to claw her way to safety. She was, she was strangled. Um, the, the, uh, the belt from her robe was used as a ligature around her neck. Brittany had fought for her life. And there was more. The 17-year-old girl had been raped. The autopsy was, was very important 
in this in this matter because we were looking for a constructive first degree meaning that that certain uh, certain murders if committed in the execution of another offense and in this case a sexual assault that makes it a constructive first degree murder the home in southwest calgary was surrounded by police tape Forensic crime scenes investigators worked tirelessly to collect evidence. Slowly, police pieced together what happened and unraveled the web of lies Brad Ritz had created. He was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Brittany's family and friends were in shock, including Brittany's best friend, Ashley. I have, like, all these questions that... I want answers to, but I've been like thinking about it, trying to like figure things out, but it does make sense. It was nearly two years later that details of Brittany's death would be revealed in court, but there would be no trial. A rare guilty plea today at the start of a first-degree murder trial. A Calgary man stops proceedings and confesses to killing his teenage stepdaughter. As Nancy Hicks reports, the guilty plea brings closure to a very disturbing case. I believe that justice was served in this case. Um, it came at the 11th hour and uh, we were very well prepared to proceed today. And uh, I'm very thankful that Mr. Ritz uh, did not have the opportunity to victimize the family one more time. Pleading guilty to first-degree murder is rare, and it came against all advice from senior legal counsel. I think it's the most serious charge in the criminal code. I think philosophically and practically all first-degree murder charges have to proceed to trial. I think the process demands it, as some are more egregious than others, but I really believe that I can't plead guilty to first-degree murder, and I wouldn't today. Without a lawyer representing him, Ritz told the court he admits he forced himself on Brittany February 17, 2010. During the sexual assault, he choked her with his hands until she was unconscious. Then he took the belt from her robe, wrapped it around her neck, and strangled her to death. Detective Barrow said the evidence against Ritz was strong. There was DNA and he had confessed to police several times after his arrest. Ritz had fought to keep those confessions out of court, but he lost that battle. That's when he decided to plead guilty. That kept his reenactment of the crime out of the public eye. Instead, his actions were outlined in a lengthy, vivid, and explicit agreed statement of facts that was read in court. I was there that day. The details were horrific and extremely hard to listen to. The facts were based on his interview with police. Those were audio and video recorded. Those recordings have never been made public until now. On January 21st, 2010, four days after Brittany was killed, Brad Ritz was discharged from hospital. When he was first admitted, he had presented symptoms of delirium, but his symptoms had disappeared and police arrested him. He was taken to Calgary Police Headquarters and put into an interview room. He was wearing a plaid button-down shirt and checkered pajama pants and those blue disposable booties you get when you're in the hospital. For a while, 
He was left alone with his thoughts. He sat with his head down in his arms on the table. He cried and whispered to himself. About 15 minutes later, Calgary Police Detective Ross Hart joined him. At the time, Hart was an investigator assigned to the child abuse unit. What's your understanding of why you're here today? I've been charged with the murder of Brittany. Okay. Now, is it, now it's my understanding that you've, have you waived your right to speak to a lawyer? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, and you know what, that is why we're here today. Yeah. Uh, we're going to speak about the, the death of Brittany Norman McInnes. Okay. Ritz waived his right to call a lawyer, which is unusual for someone charged with first-degree murder. And I'm just curious as to why you want to waive your right. I just, I just want to get it over with, I guess. I don't know. Okay. And that's fair. You know what? Oh, I feel so shitty. Yeah. What do you feel shitty about? Oh, such a good... Detective Hart took his time with Ritz and tried to get him to open up about what he had done to Brittany. So they woke up, um, boy, I think I made Kelly and Katie breakfast <laughs> like I normally do. Um, uh, they went off to church. Uh, we were letting Brittany sleep in because she had been working quite a bit and hadn't been feeling that great. Ritz said he went down to Brittany's room to wake her up and ended up sitting on her bed to talk for a while. And, uh, and she got up and I got up with her and I, I pushed her back down for some reason that I don't even know why I did. And I struggled with her and kind of went from there. Oh, boy. Oh. Never in a million years would I have ever thought I would do something like that. I don't know what snapped in me. No idea. Ritz told the detective his memory of what happened that Sunday morning wasn't great. Hart told him to slow down and they could go through it together, step by step. I should note, through the course of the interview, Ritz gave several confessions, and every time he revealed a little bit more about what he had done. I went down and knocked on the door, and she got up and opened up the door, and like we always do, go sit down on her bed and just talk for a little while. And uh, is that what happens this time? Do you guys sit down and talk? Yeah, we sat down again. Yeah, okay. we sat down and, you know, I said, how was your sleep? Good. And she asked if they went to church. And I said, yeah, they're off at church. And I said, what do you want for breakfast? Because I normally make a, a Sunday breakfast if everybody's around or if I'm making breakfast, I make it for everyone. Right. And, uh, and she said, I think I'm just going to have my Fruit Loops because she had bought Fruit Loops the day before, I guess, for herself. And, and uh, and we got up off the bed, and and I gave her a, a big hug, and she gave me a hug back, and she goes, uh, 
we'll go upstairs now, Dad. And for some reason, I didn't go upstairs. I don't know why. So what happened? All next? I had to do was just say, yeah, let's go upstairs, and it wouldn't. I, I pushed her back down on the bed. And I know we struggled for a bit, and she scratched me a couple times and stuff. And, I think I ripped her shirt. Yeah, I ripped her shirt. He said, no, you're my dad, you can't do this. And I said, I said, yeah, I am your dad, and I just, I just kept going. And I think we struggled longer. Ritz was not immediately forthcoming about the sexual assault. The interview is about five hours long. Over and over, he mentioned Brittany wanted Fruit Loops for breakfast, but multiple times, he stopped short of fully confessing to what he did. Uh, for a bit, she was quiet. And I had pulled her, I had pulled her bottoms off, okay? And I don't know if I, I honestly don't know if I did anything or not. I, I don't know if, if there's something there or not something there, I don't know. Okay. Um, that part I, I don't honestly remember. I still don't remember that. Um, so why, why did the bottoms, why did you pull her bottoms off? Last thing in the world I ever wanted didn't what's that? Have sex with her or anything. That just didn't enter my mind. At one point, the detective took a break and got them food. They shared some pizza and talked about hockey, Ritz's upbringing, just casual chit-chat. But eventually, the detective brought the conversation back to Brittany's murder. Hart told Ritz they had evidence, and his story wasn't adding up. And I'm sure you're aware, Brad, that there's, uh, I don't have everything that happened that night. Okay. Um, so we'll go through it. And now I understand the memory and that kind of stuff, and sometimes memory is a funny thing. But in, in order for me to do a thorough job um, with speaking with you and with the investigation, I want everything covered. Okay. Um, there's obviously parts um, that I know that you may not know that I know, and, I, and I'm not here to hide anything from yeah, you, right? no, and, and, I, and I know that you're not, not here to hide yeah. anything from me. In fairness to everybody, you need to tell me your story. Then, finally, Ritz admitted 
he raped Brittany. Graphic details of the sexual assault were read in court when he pleaded guilty, but it's chilling to hear the father recount the crime in his own words. Yeah, it was, it was brief, but... Okay. Not by brief, what, what do you mean, time span-wise? 20 seconds, maybe. 20 seconds, maybe? Maybe. Okay. So what happens after that? What are, What's Brittany doing? <sighs> she just kind of laid there. And then I, I got up. Is she saying something to you? Uh, she didn't say anything to me at that point. Okay. I got up right away and I pulled my pants back up. And then she started kicking and screaming some more and really yelling. And that's when I came back down on her and I started choking her with both hands. Okay. Well, she's screaming at you. Is she saying something specific or? Uh, I think she's, I think she's saying, just, just let me go, Dad. I won't say, I won't tell anybody. That's what she said. Okay. Ritz said he panicked and started choking her with his hands. You know, she was trying to kick away and everything. She wasn't getting away, obviously. Right. And she finally finally went limp, and I think I held on even longer after that. Then he grabbed the tie from her robe and strangled her with it. Brittany was dead. Ritz had built her bed and knew there was a spot underneath the bed for storage, so he lifted the mattress and hid her body. It's panic time, and that's, I think, that's why I put her in the bed. Like, and that's panic, obviously. He then made the bed and straightened things up in Brittany's room. When he looked in the mirror, he realized she had scratched him. That's when he decided to make up a story about someone trying to break into their home to try to explain away his injuries. I, I really don't have clue why I would have done that. I honestly don't know. It was just something that popped in. That was the first of many lies he told to try to cover up what he had done. The story that Brittany went babysitting and to sleep over at Ashley's were made up. He admitted to texting Brittany's phone in front of her mother to make it seem like Brittany was okay. And that included the final text. And what did it say? God forgive me. God forgive me. Brad Ritz went with police to revisit the crime scene. He reenacted what he did for officers. I've seen that video, and honestly, it's horrific. And I feel sharing it would be disrespectful to Brittany's family. It was this graphic evidence that led Ritz to plead guilty. He specifically told officers 
He didn't want people to see it. On February 15, 2012, two years after he killed Brittany, Brad Ritz was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. There was one person who wasn't surprised by what Brad had done, and that was Katie, Brittany's sister. He was controlling to the point where if we got up in the middle of the night to go for a pee, he would stomp down the stairs really, really fast to like scream at us to see why we were awake still. I remember when I was like six or seven, I would pee in a garbage can because I was too scared to pee in the bathroom. Katie said this was a dark side of Brad. I feel like if I was looking in on this family, like my own family and I was looking in, I wouldn't suspect the thing. Like it looked like a really good close-knit family and all of a sudden this happens and it's just like so out of the blue. But like I said, behind closed doors, that's just not how it is. Katie and Brittany were close. They were there for each other through it all. They shared everything, including one horrible secret. I might have been like 11, but we did this thing um, because like there's a lot that we didn't tell our parents. And so we would say this thing to each other and it would be like, promise you won't tell the parents. And as soon as you said that, it was like a bond. As soon as you said, yes, I promise, like you couldn't tell the parents, like no matter how bad it was, no matter what it was, you could not tell your parents. Otherwise, like you're breaking that like best friend rule. So she told me, promise you won't tell the parents. And I said, yes. And she told me like, you know, every time I'm sleeping or no, every morning when um, dad says that I was dreaming about something, he actually came into my room and did this to me. And I mean, I promised I, I wouldn't say anything, so I didn't. And she went to a camp, <clears throat> a Christian camp for one summer. She went for, I don't even know, a few days, a week, maybe. And she told me to make sure I locked my bedroom door because she said, I'm going to be gone and I don't want it to happen to you, so lock your bedroom door. And so I did, and I woke up in the middle of the night and he was doing the same thing to me. You know, we were kids, we were terrified. It was so hard because, like, he was so good at just, like, messing with our minds and just uh, making us, like, want his approval still. Like, as disgusting as that sounds, we still wanted his approval. And, like, we were so desperate to have a father figure in our lives. Like, we just wanted him to be the man that everyone else saw him as. The allegations of prior sexual abuse against Brittany and Katie never came out in court. Ritz was never charged for anything beyond Brittany's first-degree murder. The agreed statement of facts only addressed Ritz sexually assaulting Brittany on the day he murdered her. At the time, it was presented as a one-off, that Ritz was a great guy who just had one major lapse in judgment. As I was putting together this podcast, I put in a request through the Correctional Service of Canada to interview him in prison. I was hoping to ask Ritz about the new allegations of sexual abuse, but he declined to speak with me. I can tell you, I was shocked 
by what Katie shared with me. And that's the thing that really is annoying is that everybody just thinks he was just this great guy and just snapped one day. And it's just, that's just not true. Everyone, he portrayed himself as this like great human being. In reality, he was just the devil. I think he was just like so self-indulgent that he just thought he was getting away with it. He just thought he was that person. He's like, I can do whatever I want. I'll get away with whatever I want. And you know, if we said something, nobody would believe us because like you said, everyone saw him as this person that, you know, like you said, this was a one-off. Like no one would suspect him to be that human being. So, I mean, if I shared what he was doing to us, who would believe us? It's only now, a decade after her sister's death, that Katie is really starting to deal with the trauma. She said, sharing memories of Brittany with me for this podcast has been therapeutic. Katie has a Superman tattoo. So do a lot of those close to Brittany. And every February 1st, they celebrate Brittany with Superman Day. They wear the caped crusader on their chest and share posts on social media. Katie loves to reminisce about the good times she had with her sister. She showed me one special keepsake. To some, it would be a very basic drawing, two stick figures on lined paper. But for Katie, the sketch is a symbol of the never-ending love between her and her best friend, her sister. There's an arrow pointing to one of the long-haired figures with the name Katie. The other long-haired figure has Brittany's name above it. Both girls had big smiles on their faces. Like the drawing that she made me that says like, I heart you little sister. Yeah, so she drew that for me because we got in a fight and that was like her way of saying sorry. She like passed me a note. It was like one of those fights that I was on her side and then we started like screaming at each other and then we were very quiet and then she slipped that under the curtain. There's another thing that Katie shared with me. Brittany requested that if she died, the song Concrete Angel by Martina McBride be played at her funeral. And it was. If you're not familiar, the lyrics include, it's hard to see the pain behind the mask, bearing the burden of a secret storm. Sometimes she wishes she was never born. Thank you for joining me and letting me share Brittany's story with you. I also want to take a moment to thank Katie for having the courage to share her story with me. If you've been the victim of a sexual assault or know someone who has been, please reach out for help, contact police or call 911.
For those new to this podcast, if this is your first time listening to Crime Beat, please go back and listen to the previous episodes. These are all such important stories. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a question about one of the episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.